0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: I am Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And I am Tara Tibbetts in the sweltering Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> and you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for August 20th, 2020. And I don't know, I think I'm kind of excited that we are episode twenty five oh. 1 ding, ding, so ding, the ding, first ding, 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 ding. first after 2500 um and this episode is brought to you by the HRN auditors good morning horse world This is our extra special monthly episode that we talk exclusively about fox hunting. We come to you the third Thursday of every month. So if you are a fox hunter or you're looking to learn more about fox hunting, come back and see us on the third Thursday of every month.
2: woo Got a quiz question for you. Yes. Um, back in the day, it was common practice that fox hunters, the horse in the off season, the summer months, were just turned out to pasture and they just they had time off, they didn't do anything at all. Do you yeah. is that something that you still see commonly amongst avid fox hunters, or are the horses more likely to be doing some other discipline through the summer months?
1: So of course I can speak to what I know and I have never trail ridden this much in my life and i've been <laughs> trail riding with um some of my newer fox hunting friends who are more on the dallas side if if for anyone not familiar with dallas and fort worth dallas and fort worth are about 30 miles apart and then both cities have pretty substantial uh suburbs and rural communities that kind of come out you know west of fort worth and then east of dallas so i have quite a few friends who live on the northeast and the east side of dallas and they go trail riding every weekend. I usually like will catch up with them. Oh, uh, once or twice a month, just kind of depending on where they go trail riding. Mm-hmm. And then folks that I follow and know from other hunts and on social media, um, they'll do some like open shows. Uh, if there's depending on the climate of where they live, they maybe do some hunter pace type stuff. I think a lot of Fox hunters anymore do a lot of trail riding in the summer. Um, I think that the, and that's probably true of the more, I would say avid fox hunters, those who fox hunt and, but they're more into showing maybe, um, you know, summer's kind of a big time outside of Corona apocalypse for showing. And so usually they're, you know, they're really hitting it and showing. And then the fox hunting season is kind of what they do during their off the show season. And Also, quite a few polo players. I know the polo seasons here in Texas are, I want to say, like May, June, and then it starts again, and it's like September, October. So they'll use the fox hunting season to break in young horses and, you know, start conditioning their older horses at the end of the season. So there's all kinds of different ways of doing summer.
2: That's very interesting. I think, at least here in the United States, the horse equestrian culture is a lot less seasonal than it was maybe a generation ago where you had a show season and an off season for every imaginable discipline
1: yep and i think the travels made a big difference in that
2: yeah i think i think people who have and enjoy horses are much more apt to toss the horse into a horse trailer and go do overnights or even week long or even seasonal things with their horses. Again, compared to a generation or two ago where you showed the vast majority of people showed locally and then a small percentage right. showed regionally and a teeny tiny percentage would show nationally or ride nationally that cause even nowadays you see an amazing number of people who, their discipline is pleasure riding. They don't compete for prizes of any sort, but right. yet they have the three-horse slant load living quarters with the $75,000 King Ranch Ford F-350. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, and I'm in a mecca for that. Yeah. And you see that so much with people who
2: are, from the industry's point of view, a non-competitive rider, which, you know, that nobody ever cared. People who create attack and people who create trailers and people who create uh, horse feed always dismissed that segment of the equestrian population. And I think they're starting to get people's attention now because they show up at the campground with the rig and they've got it decked out and they're riding, they're riding themselves a $12,000
1: Pasifino. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it's so true. And I think we talked about this on the last episode that I, uh, ordered a living quarters horse trailer and, you know, you go looking for living quarters horse trailers and t- for multiple reasons, I didn't want some like insanely long thing. Cause I don't want to be bound by, Oh, I can't go there. Cause my trailer's too big, mm-hmm. but you go look at those living quarters trailers and it's exactly true. And I will say a ton of the Fox hunters I know have gotten the big living quarters trailers and They'll go stay in, you know, the, the hound trials, they'll go stay for a week or different hunts, you know, and a lot of the hunts and like, uh, Mead I know does. And a lot of the Virginia hunts do a hunt week. And I have friends who they'll take their living quarters trailers and they'll go stay and they'll do hunt week for a week and just stay in their living quarters trailers. And it is, you know, cause a lot of people just don't want to compete. You know, you go to, for me to go to an A show, my show bill is pretty close to a thousand dollars and that's not even counting me staying in a hotel, me driving there, me paying my trainer, um, paying any of the other extraneous stuff. So it's pretty, it really limits how much you can do something like that.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. It is interesting to, to watch all that transform. And one of our guests today, Alexa is one of those people who has discovered fox hunting, even though her main object in riding is as a competitive show hunter, kind of like you. So yeah. it'd be interesting to hear her point of view on finding fox hunting and what it has to offer someone who enjoys competing in the hunt seat uh, classes. So that's going to be a fun chat. Uh, before we get to our fun chat, though, I want to find out what our term of the month is because I'm reading my notes here and I'm going to have questions.
1: So I, you know, I... I've gotten since we made our spreadsheet this this endeavor to ter- to pick a term of the month has gotten easier. And when I saw the term of the month that I chose for today, I was like, hey, "Have we really not done that?" And we <laughs> haven't. Which it seems like a pretty integral term that you should know. And so our term of the month today is fieldmaster. And I'm I'm going to r- kind of read the description and this is from Bridal Spurs website, bridalspur.com. Um, And it says the field master may be a master of the um, MFH, which is a master of foxhounds, or a member of the hunt who has hunted for a number of years, knows the country well, and has a steady, bold jumping horse. The field master rides ahead of the field members within sight of the huntsman, but not too close as to interfere. And I'm not going to describe the next part of it because, well, the field is just who the people who are riding behind the right. field master. And I'm going to do that as the term of the month that's next our, month. That's us so. regular
2: folks. Okay.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, you know, you must never pass the field master, which is a good thing to know. Most hunts have two fields. And again, we'll talk more about that on the next one. And so each field will have a field master and it's interesting, you know, I've ridden with, I think like five or six different hunts now and different hunts kind of do it. Somewhat their own way. Usually a field master is wearing a red coat, which is for anybody who ever goes out fox hunting. If you remember one thing, remember never ride in front of someone wearing a red coat unless they tell you to pass them.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. If there is one rule, if there is one commandment in fox hunting, (laughs) don't step on a hound and don't pass the guy
1: in red. Yep. Yep. And it's really not like, yes, it's part of the etiquette, but also it's a safety thing because, you know, just like the definition says, the field master knows the country well. So they might know, you know, if there's a bad drop off after a hill or they might know there's, you know, where we live right now, when the ground gets dry, there gets to be big crevices. They might know where there's big crevices you should stay away from. Also, they're really paying attention to and oftentimes are in communication with the huntsman. And so, you know, you might think you're going straight to the left and then all of a sudden they're actually, the field's going to turn into a sharp right. And so it's a safety thing as well as an etiquette thing to stay behind the field master. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what confuses me, and this has from when I was wee little, first time I went fox hunting, I think I was 13. Oh, wow. Field master versus master of foxhounds. The master of foxhounds, the big guy in red, he's in charge of the fox hunt. He's the big boss, right?
1: Yes, and there a lot of hunts have multiple. Usually, they'll have two or three masters.
2: Just because it's convenient in this day and age. Yes.
1: Yes. Well, and because in the old days, I would, and you might know this better than me, but like the master was like you know the person who owned the ginormous place in England where they were hunting. Pretty much.
2: The, it. What it long time ago masters of fox the master of foxhound was was the lord high muckety muck frequently right. also the owner of the foxhounds themselves right um, it was much more um what's the word i'm looking for
1: a dictatorship
2: yeah it was it was gentrified <laughs> because that's how it started yeah. out right in this day and age where it's all very communal a lot of volunteer people who also have second careers ah! outside of their fox hunting uh, obligations, you need co MFHS masters of foxhounds right. to cover all of the jobs, all of the work that needs to be done. Where I used to get confused is some hunts have a master of foxhound who also acts as a field master, and yes. some yes. fox hunts have a master of foxhounds and additionally one or more field masters. So that gets a, that's a little bit confusing and the most recent hunts that I've gone out with the field masters, one for each field or each group, the jumping group, the not jumping group, the, we're officially going to go to go slow today. Group. Yeah. Um, frequently down here in Florida, because our hunts are tiny down here. Um, uh-huh. don't wear red They're, Oh really? If, if we're wearing jackets at all. And most of the time we don't even wear jackets down here because even in the winter, the temperatures are in the eighties. Um, they will wear a different colored polo because oftentimes a polo shirt, except on the most formal of days, is what we wear. Um, they will look just like everybody else in the field. And you just have to remember what they look like. And that can get tricky in the heat of battle. Yeah,
1: yeah I do. <laughs> like we we have our, Brazos Valley has our field masters always wear red just because it's it's a visual thing. Exactly. That
2: and it's it's amazing because... There's only 20, let's say it's a small day. There's 20 people out there, 25 right. people out there. You would think at the beginning of the of the hunt, uh, the master greets everybody. Everybody says, good morning. This is how it's going to go today. Georgina over here is going to be the master of second field. Georgina raises her hand and says, hi, everybody. I'm second field master. You're going to follow me. And it's amazing after about 15 minutes of trotting, as fast as your horse can trot and ducking under trees and getting crashed (laughs) into by palm fronds, you forget what Georgina looked like. Yes. (laughs) And then you pass Georgina and then you get in trouble. (laughs)
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) Thankfully, I I, I don't experience.
1: (laughs) I don't think I've had a lot of the hunts I've been on where it's kind of a, a field of like 20 to 30 ish. Depending on, you know, if you have somebody who's like, I am not jumping and jump and I am not galloping and, you know, they are going to go in a slow field regardless. But a lot of times when you don't have people in the field like that, it kind of like once things get going, it ends up that both fields kind of will join up. They tend to merge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They'll merge for a little while. And then a lot of times then towards the end. You know, if somebody's horse isn't as fit as they thought, or they're sore from riding or something along those lines, then towards the end, I've been there where sometimes that's that second field will kind of split back up again. And that's, I think the, you know, the field master, it, it really is a hard, it can be a really difficult job. Like I know when I was in Burwell last year, I, uh, I had never ridden Simon on first flight before because he'd only ever been a whip horse. And so we started out in second flight with that group, which they had three flights that day, so they had three groups. They had the fast galloping jumping group, and then I went with the fast galloping non jumping group. And our field master knew the property really well, and she thought she knew where all the gate openings were, so we could get through the the gate close to where the jumps were, so we could keep up with the the huntsmen essentially. But they had changed a bunch of the gate openings, oh, no! and so we. Ended- we galloped a lot trying to find gate openings.
2: <gasps> oh, no. I see. And that's why it's key to have those field masters who are familiar with that particular territory yes. because things do change. And depending on what field they're guiding, they might want to take path A and not path B. Well, path A I can take when I have the fast galloping group. But when yep. I have the trotting group, I can't take that one because I'm going to get left behind big time if I take that. Yes. Path. I have to take this one over here. Uh, and that's that's part of the the tricky parts and and part of the fun, frankly, of Fox, oh, yeah. is you you get to see different places at different speeds, and it's kind of a yes. it's kind of a fast trail ride free for all, and that's part of the fun.
1: oh, it's it's you know, it's I feel like we've had many, I guess talk about it, and it's just you never see. The territory, like you see it from a fox hunt. Like it's even not quite the same, like on an actual trail ride. No, it's not because because your, you look your at pace it is so different. Yeah. Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. The thing I've come and yet- closest to is when you're doing it, en- when I do an endurance ride, it's a little bit similar in that I'm moving yeah, along at a pretty that. good pace most of the time. The difference being you don't have the group dynamic that you do. In fox hunting, it's a very different thing because everybody's doing their own thing. There's 125 other horses out there with you on an endurance ride, but you're each kind of doing your own thing and you're all following the same path at your own pace versus a fox hunt where you have 35 horses out there, but they're pretty much one giant group that has to stay together. So even that is subtly different. Yeah. And it's, it's getting me all excited to go out and do some rides and it's the middle of summer and there's no rides right now. Grr. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, I have to ask, is Nigel is he better or does he seem to like fox hunting or endurance rides better? Um or which one is he easier to ride?
2: Which one is he easier to ride? I'm going to Cuz s- I know he
1: gets a little racy at the endurance. R-
2: I'm going to say he was easier to ride
1: on the fox hunt.
2: Um I think for him the pack o horses that you are, are shuffled around in. You're never more than a few horses' length apart, right? And he seemed to have a easier time grasping the concept of stay a horse length behind that guy, versus endurance riding where their horses spread out over miles, and he can hear them in front of him. He can yeah. hear them behind him. <laughs> they pass him. We pass them. That seems to confuse him more and get him more uh, frantic emotionally than yeah. fox hunting. Now, fox hunting, you know, he pulled my arms out, Yeah, but he didn't have the meltdown. On an endurance ride, if I'm not very, very careful, he will literally have a meltdown.
1: Yeah. Poor guy.
2: Yeah, poor Nigel. He just, I wish he could jump because then he could be a first flight horse in a heartbeat, but he he's kind of a klutz. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> kind of funny. a klutz.
1: Poor Nigel. <laughs> poor
2: Nigel. We love Nigel. He's a good boy. Oh my goodness. And spe- but spe- and one
1: go one ahead. last thing I did want to say about fieldmaster, especially for people who are new to fox hunting, when you go out, the uh, the last, probably one of the most important jobs of the fieldmaster is making sure that everyone in the field is safe, and so. That, I think, can be a really, really, you know, if somebody's overhorsed or yeah. if they come off and get hurt or whatnot, like, it's important, especially, you know, and I've seen this happen where people are like, oh, I'm done, and they'll just turn around and go back to the trailers. No, 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 don't you do that, You have to tell the field master where you're going because they're responsible for bringing the same number of bodies back to the trailers at the end as they went out with them. Yes, and so. hopefully
2: every single body is still at 98.8.
1: Yeah. Yes. Exactly, yeah, and you're upright. Right.
2: That, and that's something I see pr- pretty near every hunt I go on. There's somebody who makes the decision to take a sh- what they perceive as a shortcut. They know right. they know where the field is going to be going, and they take their own route, or they decide that they need to head back. Yep. And that's right up there with the commandments of don't pass the guy in red and don't step on a hound. Yep.
1: If you need and usually, to if back,
2: you, you need to yeah. let people know.
1: Right. Exactly. And you, if usually, cause I've been on hunts where, you know, a horse was losing its mind or, you know, some, usually it's something similar to that. And they'll just be like, Oh, I'm going to turn around and go back. And it, you know, we're always like, you need to talk to the field master because they know where the huntsman and the hounds are going mm-hmm. and they can tell you, you know, don't go straight back, take this, uh, you know, go this way and then go that right. way so that you stay out of the way of the huntsman and don't make that person mad. Right. And you can get back safely and do your thing.
2: And so. depending upon the situation, the the field master may make the decision to send someone back with you yes and if they make that decision be gracious and say thank you
1: well especially if if your horse is freaking out they'll usually do better if they go back with a buddy exactly
2: and regardless don't take it personally because i know i've seen this happen where the person who needs to go back gets gets a little bit put out yes they have to have you know they have somebody babysitting don't just say thank you very much remember it's the field master's responsibility he might yes. not know you very well he's going to take yes. he's going to take the safe route and make sure you get back to the uh, the trailers all in one piece and happily and usually the person he's sending back with you is someone he knows well and they're going to be just fine with it
1: <laughs> yes absolutely and and to that end also i have seen field masters ask somebody to go back to the trailers because they are their horse was distracting yes. others or they yes. They felt they were unsafe for some reason, and in that situation, they've always sent somebody with the person. Yeah. Um, and, and again, happen, it's yeah. it's you know it's kind of like talking to the judge at the horse show. Like you follow the correct protocol after the fact and ask them about it, and they're usually more than happy to give you an explanation. But out mm-hmm. in the field, they probably won't. Not the time, right? Right, yeah.
2: and they might have right. some you know some suggestions. Okay, th- these things were happening with you and your horse. Uh, here's someone you can. Use as a resource or, yep. or something like that, because I am often on the horse that is that horse. So I'm pretty good at staying out of everybody's way because I'm often on the horse that can't stand still. And if you yeah. have one of those fidgety horses, there are ways that you can minimize your distraction. Right. <laughs> maybe exactly. We'll talk to, maybe we'll talk to a, hunt, a field master about that sometime.
3: I, no, I think that'd be great.
2: Yeah. 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 And speaking of minimizing distractions and being too sore to stand up the next day after you go riding, uh, we're going to take a quick break here before our first guest. And we're going to hear from Roger from Greenflower Botanicals and Dr. Wendy Ying. And they're going to chat a little bit about CBD oil and pain.
0: And now our own Dr. Wendy Ying speaks with Roger from Greenflower Botanicals in a series we call CBD Oil 101.
4: In our continuing series on CBD oil, we're going to discuss how we can use CBD oil to help us with arthritis and sports injuries in people, horses, and dogs. Roger, how can we use this as part of our protocol to help with arthritis pain?
0: First of all, probably one of the main things CBD is known for is its anti-inflammatory properties. And of course, that ties right in with its analgesic you know, pain-relieving properties. You can take the oil sublingually, uh, the tinctures that we sell. Uh, you can also apply the oil directly to the skin. And then, of course, we also sell um, lotions for that. But it's highly, highly effective. It's probably one of the main reasons uh, that people are purchasing CBD out there today. Works wonderfully for dogs. Uh, we have our dog using it for hip dysplasia and really any kind of joint and mobility uh, we'd certainly recommend that people at least give CBD a try because for a lot of people, it just is just this side of of miraculous, so it seems.
4: And we, I we know that with traditional non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, there are a lot of side effects like gastric ulcers or liver and kidney damage. Is CBD oil much safer than those other options?
0: Yeah, that's really kind of beauty of it. I mean, it's, just, it's a whole plant extract, has all these wonderful omega fatty acids in it and other trace cannabinoids and things. And actually CBD very soothing to your gastric system. So there's just really no side effects whatsoever. Uh, nothing compared to NSAIDs or other popular um, pharmaceuticals that people might be using.
4: And for the topical products, can that help with, like, you know, we're talking about inflammation that can help with our skin diseases, like maybe hot spots in dogs?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, your skin, the largest organ on your body, but the skin is full of all kinds of little hungry receptors that just love the application of these cannabinoids, which is is what CBD is. It's a cannabinoid. So very, very healthy for all kinds of skin conditions, including even acne and things of that nature.
4: You know, I personally had great results from using the cream on my tennis elbow. It really made a big difference. And also I didn't have to use as much because I was using it right directly on the spot of the paint. So this is really wonderful, Roger. How can people find out more about green flower botanical products?
0: Sure. That's real easy. You just go to greenflowerbotanicals.com. You can see all of our products there, uh, whether it's tinctures or or topicals. If you use a coupon, coupon code HRN, we give 20% off to uh, our HRN listeners. If you show your horses, please check with your federation on the legal use of CBD oil.
1: So I am excited today to be chatting with Alexa Basile and Alexa, we connected, I'm forgetting now, was it in the Horse amateur group or was it the amateur, one of the Facebook amateur groups, correct?
5: Yeah, it was, um, the one that the girls from the amateur hour put out on Facebook. Yes.
1: So if anyone out there is an amateur and they ride, I highly recommend those Facebook groups. They're really fun. So what, um, clicked was you had posted and I'm having a little bit of a mental, um, lapse as to the details, but you have been a fox hunter and you're now riding your show horse to do fox hunting. There's a fox hunting COVID connection here. So remind me what yes. it is.
5: Um, so I maybe started fox hunting with a family friend, um, on long Island who goes out with the Smithtown hunt. And um, probably in college and, uh, you know, I was hooked. I always did the horse show thing, hunter jumper, Um, you know, since I was little and still do it now. But I I frequently, when I go home to visit on Long Island, I'm in Rochester, New York now. So Western New York, I go maybe Thanksgiving, if I'm home, St. Patrick's Day hunt, New Year's Eve, Um, you know, kind of like the big fun hunts with her and borrow a horse usually. But um since moving up to Western New York, I reached out to the Genesee Valley hunt um to see if I could go out with them. So I've been uh, borrowing horses um you know whenever I have time and whenever there's one available to go out with. And about five years ago I bought uh my horse who's an off the track thoroughbred. Um and we've we've just done you know, the horse show thing slowly and surely he's gotten past two pretty big substantial injuries. Um, uh, so it's been a, a slow go with him, but with COVID I was like, well, there's really no horse shows going on. Um, up in Western New York, we go indoors by the end of September. Um, and there's really been no talk about horse showing indoors. Um, I don't really feel comfortable showing indoors either. So I'm like, oh, let me go out on a whim here and ask my, you know, traditional hunter-jumper horse show trainer, can I take Robert hunt schooling? Because uh, the master, um, Marion from the Genesee Valley Hunt, does, um, you know, schooling on certain mornings for green horses or new-to-fox hunting horses. Yeah. So she's asked me a few times to go, and I'm like, oh do, do I ask? They're going to think I'm crazy. They already (laughs) think I'm crazy for borrowing (laughs) horses and going sometimes, you know, what is she going to say? So she was like, Oh no, that'll be, you know, that's going to be great for his brain. He's brave, you know, fine. Okay. Well, we'll give him a ride, ship him down. It's a Geneseo is about a half an hour from where I am in Rochester. And, um, he, Um, the hunt school was just a small group of us last Friday morning. He stayed Thursday evening and I hunted, um, a different horse, but he was in the barn and the hunt went right through. So he got to hear us in full cry and probably think he was at a really awesome horse show (laughs) (laughs) and wondering why he wasn't participating. But yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. He was brave, um, inquisitive, curious. No jittering,
1: nothing. He was, he was great. So going back to his horse show life, is he a hunter or a jumper? He's a hunter. Yep. He could probably do both,
5: but we, we've only done equitation and hunter stuff with
1: him. Yep. And how old is he?
5: He is nine.
1: Okay. So that's a good age. So there's a, there's a separate show on the horse radio network, the podcast, that's all horsey stuff that is, um retired racehorse radio. So there's a big, uh, big oh. focus on off-track thoroughbreds. So it always makes us excited to hear stories about off-track thoroughbreds. And for me personally, I love hearing, because I feel like you so often hear of the off-track thoroughbreds doing eventing and doing jumpers and occasionally the dressage, but I just, I feel like the focus has really gone away so much. And I love to hear about a thoroughbred doing the hunter's. Yeah. So. And
5: he's done, he's done the, um, thoroughbred incentive
1: divisions
5: at shows. Um, but I do them in the adult amateurs and he, he pretty, he holds his own against, you know, some of the warm bloods that are in the division and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm proud of him for that.
1: So what did he think about the hounds on his first for Ray out?
5: Um, so he only heard them the evening of when we came through, but, um, we didn't go out with hunts the Friday morning.
1: Oh, okay. Um, You didn't go out. Okay. I thought maybe you were walking out. Yeah.
5: Yeah. No, that, that would be probably the next step. So, um, we really just went out. We were out, um, on, um, you know, jumping natural obstacles, logs, weird barrels in the woods, coops. Um, he's never seen any of that before. He's never ridden through someone else's farm before with horses just out in the same field as him, just grazing. He had no, he was like, can you just go catch them? I don't know why they're allowed to do that. He had no idea, um, that that was a thing. Um, and yeah, following other horses, trotting, cantering, um, we practiced pull-ups, so, um, you know, just looping into the woods, letting the rest of the horses pass you while you stopped and, you know, allowing him to like wait patiently and then continue on. So we were practicing kind of those, um, kind of the etiquette you type stuff that you'll, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So what, what is the hunt season for Genesee Valley? Like when, when is, is, is autumn hunting started or will that start soon?
5: Um, soon. So we've been out cubbing now that started probably the end of July. Oh, wow. And I think, um, end of September, they have opening day. Oh,
1: what, what are the hunt races?
5: Oh, that's fun. Um, the Genesee Valley hunt races. It's great for the community too, because a lot of people that might not be, um, Fox hunters themselves get to come out, um, they do the steeple chase, they people get to meet the hounds, uh, kids get to pet the hounds, learn a little bit of history, um, and they do it off of Nations Road in Geneseo, which I'm probably not the person to talk to about this, but I guess it's a really historical fixture for hunts in the Northeast.
1: Oh, that's cool. Um, so are there any hunter paces like, can can you, and I love your horse's name is Robert. Does, will, will you take Robert on any hunter paces?
5: Yeah. So there's one, um, this weekend, which unfortunately we won't make, but there's another one coming up in October, which we plan on doing. So I'm hoping to get him out, um, schooling a little bit more similar to what we did the other day, maybe, um, hunter pace and then see if he wants to, I don't know, hunt a little bit this season.
1: That's so exciting.
5: Yeah, it's, I'm the only one from my barn that, that does something different than going to a horse show. So it's, it's exciting and people want to ask me about it and people are curious. So I think that's great for the sport too.
1: Yeah, I think, and it's, you know, you can maybe speak to this a little bit too, but you know, I remember it it was like a year or two ago when there was a big conversation about the burgundy coats and everyone's like, right. why can't we wear burgundy coats in the show ring? And it's funny to me how there's gotten, and I grew up riding Western and quarter horses in Montana. And so my, um, I've only been showing hunters for, I don't know, like eight years and fox hunting for about 10 years. Um, okay. but it's funny to me because to me, you would never wear a burgundy coat in the hunt field because it's so close to red and yep, the hunters are based on fox hunting. So I think it's cool that that you're, you know, another hunter out there, kind of connecting those things together. Right.
5: Even, um, you know, it's fun to go to a horse show and someone might be getting ready, like a little kid from our barn, getting ready for a classic and putting on a shad belly for the first time and helping them tie their stock tie. And I'm always kind of like, I'm 29, but I'm still kind of that old traditional lady in the barn. Saying, oh, do <laughs> I use a stock tie? you know, and saying, you know, out in the hunt field, you might need to use it for a tourniquet and kind of giving them a little bit of that wisdom, um, you know, or, you know, your leather belt might end up being your stirrup leather if something goes wrong. So kind of, you know, people don't think about those traditional things that you might wear at a horse show and comparing that to what people need to be productive out in the hunt field.
1: Exactly. It's, it's, you know, I I don't know. I, I grew up like I said in the Western world, and maybe it's it's that connection. But there's all these things we do in the hunters, like you said, like the shad belly and the stock tie, and um, you know, the color breeches and things. And I think people just kind of take for granted that it's always been a horse show thing. And
5: right.
1: I just I love the connection of the history, just like you said with the kids. And I. So do you think you'll get any folks from your barn to come out and, you know, borrow a horse or watch or participate in a hunt this season? Like, is anyone kind yeah. of your own interest?
5: Um, yeah. So people saying, oh, I would hunt pace and kind of thinking through the barn, like, oh, who would I take to hunt or pace? Or who would enjoy fox hunting? Um, and kind of asking me, like, um, what does a horse need to know out? you know, fox hunting or, you know, do you think my horse might be brave enough to go hunter pace or something like that? Um, you know, so kind of asking those questions, which I think is really cool that people are thinking a little bit of it. It would be awesome to just kind of get a group
1: of us and go hunter pace and have, you know, a little team. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's delightful. So what what do you think your next, you know, you think you'll be able to hunt Robert through the season? Or are you gonna borrow other horses or what's your season looking like?
5: Yeah, I mean, horse show wise, we're not gonna go inside, um, indoors. Um, it's kind of it's it's a little tough because I do recognize that I board him at, you know, your typical hunter jumper. We lesson twice a week hack the other days of the week, um, jump ring. Um, it's a little awkward to, you know, pay, you know, I don't have my own horse and trailer. Um, so be, you know, when the Barnes trailer is free and when my trainer would be free to, you know, it's just a half an hour away, but still pick us up when we're done and whatnot. Um, so I kind of have to play that by ear. Um, you know i the dream would be to have my own property and i think w- me and my fiance are working towards that in the next few years and then i would have more freedom with i want a horse show this weekend or yeah let's hunt this hunt the season and horse show in the spring and the summertime um so i think i'm kind of playing it by ear for now maybe every two or 3 weeks bring him to hunt school or i don't you know i don't i don't know it's been so easy to borrow a horse. Um yeah, there's one horse me. that I hunt more consistently than others who's just steady Eddie. Um, you know, I feel comfortable um and confident with him. I can go up in first field and he's awesome. Um so just kind of getting my confidence in hunting too, because I've done it, you know, so sporadically growing up. Yeah. Um, and he can kind of teach me that and, you know, hone in on my skills first and then once I feel super confident, then going out with Robert more consistently.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to kind of follow along and and see how things go with Robert. I have a six-year-old off-the-track thoroughbred, and this will be his third season, I think, oh, of wow. hunting. Um, yeah, he's just, he's been, I, I joke that he's a geriatric quarter horse in a six-year-old <laughs> off-the-track thoroughbred's body because he's always just... He's been super chill, but uh, we're we're planning on doing some um, hunt traveling quite a bit this year and going to some hunts in Nebraska and Kansas and Georgia. And we're based in Texas, and it kind of made me giggle when you said you started um, doing some stuff with the the autumn hunting cubbing in July because it was right. 107 last Saturday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, needless I mean, to say, the hounds so are not out doing much. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's still warm and the bugs are crazy. Um, mostly everybody wears, you know, like a, um, a fly sheet, like quarter sheet. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, you know, and the fly bonnets and everything like that are needed. A crop is mostly needed for the giant green head flies, not yeah. making your horse go any faster, but Yeah. yeah.
1: That is one thing about I, in the North, I feel like the bug season is shorter. And so the bugs are a lot bigger Yeah, for some reason, (laughs) because it's so hot down here that they're kind of all dead right now. So it's, it's been great. So we're, we're going to put a link to Genesee Valley in the show notes, but if people want to learn more about you and follow, follow along, is there any, is, is there any way they can connect or see, or I, I know maybe you have a private Facebook page, but Instagram or anything.
5: Right. Um. People are, you know, and I follow, it's not a horse directed Instagram. Um, I have thought about that, but, you know, I do follow a lot of other people that might fox hunt or horse show and, you know, in, invite other people to follow me too. But um, for Instagram is Alexa, A-L-E-X-A um, and Libby, L-I-B-B-Y, which is just a play on my middle name. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so
2: much. And we've already got Richard waiting in the wings. So take it away, Tara.
1: So I am really excited to be chatting with Richard Walton of the virtual hound show today. I um, have been following along on Instagram and on Facebook and, uh, you know, a number of hunts in the United States I know are participating in the virtual hound show. And so I really wanted to talk to someone randomly sent an email to the virtual hound show contact and Richard reached out. So I'm excited to have you here, Richard to tell us all about it. So if you would start just kind of, I guess, start at the very beginning as to, you know, as people may know, basically every hound show in the world has been canceled this year. And so how did all that lead to the virtual hound show?
3: Well, Tara, it's lovely to be invited onto your podcast. It's uh, great to be able to speak to your audience. Um, Like so many of us, COVID-19 has really affected the way we set out our calendars. And for those people who follow foxhounds, the summer months are spent at hound shows. And as you quite rightly say, internationally, all the hound shows have been um, cancelled. And uh, a friend of mine posted a message on, um, on, on Facebook saying, wouldn't it be nice to do a virtual hound show? And uh, um, I, I read that, and I'm involved with a number of the real world hound shows in the United Kingdom. And um, from that little acorn of an idea, um, um, we grew an international hound show. Um, and that's what brings me uh, onto your radar, which is, uh, um, really the, the, um, the whole purpose of the virtual hound show was to bring that global community together, which is the power of the internet.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I feel so I, I ride with, and I'm a member of Brazos Valley Hounds here in Texas and our huntsman, Sandy Dixon is very active with hound showing in the United States. We we host a hound show here outside of Fort Worth, the Southwest Hound Show. We usually participate in the Central States Hound Show up in Kansas, as well as the which is kind of the pinnacle in the United States, which is the Virginia hound show. And hound shows are really kind of a um, they're more of a, you know, people more intimately involved in fox hunting tend to participate in hound shows. But for those folks who maybe aren't as familiar with the hound shows, talk a little bit just about how the hound shows are such a glue for the community of fox hunters, both from sharing bloodlines and breeding hounds and, you know, having some time to just socially connect with other people who are leading and running fox hunts.
3: Well, well, hound shows are very much a, an opportunity for different hunts to gather together. Um, we are a community um, but of course most of us during the season we operate within our own hunts a few people do travel around but mostly if you're an official of a hunt um, or a huntsman um, you're very focused with your own hands so the hound shows are one of those few occasions a bit like family gatherings that you you gather together and um discuss what's happened in the previous year, maybe make plans for the following year. And what brings us together, of course, is our hounds. And we, uh, I think you've mentioned before in some podcasts we breed our hounds for the country. But at the same time, what we like to do is be able to compare them to see who's got the hounds with the um, best conformation and maybe identify some potential Um, bloodlines that we might want to introduce to our own hunts. And that is the state, the situation in the States and in all the other countries, hound shows are the opportunity to gather together um, as a community, as a family. Um, And they are great fun over the summer months. So they've been sorely missed this year.
1: Right. Absolutely. So this virtual hound show, I, I've been watching and kind of following, and I remember um, they had on the the uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday episode of Horses in the Morning when they were there was a couple of hunts over in the UK that were setting up kind of like a steeple chase for the hounds, um, and they, you know they had a guest talk about that, and I feel like it was shortly after that that the virtual hound show, the conversation really started taking off, and there started to be more um, official information about um the the virtual hound show so a ton of work had to go into developing the website and establishing the rules and all of that so did you have a committee or did you just kind of go to other experts well
3: well, (laughs) committees are great things but i've been helped and assisted in each country by the hunting associations
4: okay and that's
3: terribly important that we Um, We've worked with the associations and the hunt secretaries and the hound show secretaries um, from each of the countries so that we are, whilst we're virtual, we're replicating the rules and standards that we see in the real world. Um, And therefore, um, it's an opportunity to um, stress the importance of the hunting associations in the different countries who set down the rules and regulations that hunts that are recognized and registered um, adhere to.
1: Okay. Which, that Um, makes sense. Um, So did you find that the the outside of the UK hound shows were run... Differently than, than what you were accustomed to? Or are they pretty much the same? or
3: They're pretty much the same. Um, uh, everyone has their own little twist. The French do it their way. Um, the Irish do it their way. And the Americans do it their way. Um, but it's the, I think, through a virtual ham show, we can celebrate that diversity. And there's more things that connect us and unite us than divide us. And the opportunity, because most of us, when we go to a hound show, we get very focused on our own hounds and our own ring. Whereas with a virtual show, you can actually travel around and see other hounds um, in, in different um, rings. We've actually got 30 rings at the virtual hound show bringing oh, wow. together. Well, yes, I mean, no one's ever had that before. Um and um if you look at just the stag hounds, we have two packs of staghounds in Ireland, there are three packs of staghounds in the United Kingdom. In the real world, you'd never get all those packs together in one place to compete, but virtually you can achieve that. So um whilst there are limitations with virtual. It does present opportunities that you just can't facilitate in the real world.
2: This brings up so many questions. My head is spinning right now. One of the questions I have, because of course I had to go surf around the website and the Facebook page, all of the enormous variety of livery that the different humans were wearing. Talk to me a little bit about that, because as an American, I've only ever hunted in America. I'm only familiar with the American versions, except the beautiful pictures I see on Facebook. Um, well, because at first well, I thought, the, oh, they have costume classes because some of these, some of the livery they were wearing looks like it's from
3: 1869. <laughs> well, a, a lot of it, if you know, if you look back at the history of the uniforms, the different color of the coats that in the United Kingdom can reflect. The house livery of um, um, the outdoor staff of a, a main house. So, if you had the Beaufort family, the Dukes of Beaufort in Gloucestershire, their um, livery was green and their outdoor staff always wore green coats. So, back in the day, someone said, Well, we'll put a hunt in green coats. And if you went down the road, to, um, um, to Barclay, to Barclay Castle, they traditionally, all, their colour was mustard. So their hunt staff wore mustard coats. May I say, and I vote for mustard. Continues. Mustard is
2: awesome looking. <laughs> it really
3: is awesome. But then you see, if you go to France, um, they will wear blue because um, the, the colour of the royal house of, Louis, um, of, 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 of France is blue. Whereas in the United Kingdom, um, the raw colour is red. A lot of people say hunting coats. The tunics, um, the coats, come. their colour comes from um, members of the military wore red coats. But we continue to wear red coats in the hunting field because if you're trying to identify who's in charge, just like at a... um, a soccer match, you'll see that the referee is wearing a black shirt, as opposed to the different colours that everyone else wears. So there is function as well as tradition to why you wear the uh, the different liveries, and of course, then you get the buttons, the number of buttons that people wear, and the more you know, you understand the traditions and where um, it stems from and how useful it is today. So if you're out hunting, I'm not sure if this is still the case in in the States, because we now wear safety helmets, it's not so relevant. But we used to wear um, velvet riding hats, and we'd have some tassels down the back of the collar. Um, and of course, an hunt official would have tassels down, and if you weren't an official, you'd stitch your tassels up. So if you were riding from behind, you would see that the person in front wasn't official of the hunt.
2: And in, um, in the thick of things, it's, so, it's nice to have those e- easy, uh, what do they call them, style cues, they call that in the, in the car industry, so that you know who's who. I have, an, I have another question about outfits, because here in the United States, the few hound shows I've been exposed to, and they've all been via video, I've never actually attended one in, in person, unfortunately. In America, they wear the little white coat so they look like the guy that works behind the butcher counter at the grocery store so i didn't see any of those <laughs> and they're, well, always, white. Know, and they're look, always white and
3: they're always white and 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 a number of the professionals they'll go to a hound show and they'll have three or four to change because of course you put a white coat on and if, if it's raining you're bound to have a hand come up and say hello to you so you'll of change course. your coats so you look smart um it's, that's part of the tradition in the states. I don't know if it's because of the heat. Because in Virginia during the summer months, um, it's hard enough to get some huntsmen to go to a hound show, but <laughs> to get them to wear full livery and and um, top boots, it might be a little much. Whereas a um, a uh, a white coat with a with a um, a collar and tie, that fits the bill. But even in the states, as I understand it different classes uh, the English classes the um, there were a bowler hats whereas in other classes there were a hunting cap yep
2: cool so how are the classes divided up give me a give me sort of a a sampling of the different classes that are going to well, be held
3: well in in North America we have our fox hands and we've also got a we have a beagle ring and we've got a basset ring so in North America we have are crossbred foxhounds and English foxhounds, American foxhounds, and men, then Penn Meridale foxhounds. And each class, we have two competitions going on. We have a public vote, which is something that we don't actually do at the hand shows, but everyone outside the ring um, casts an opinion amongst themselves or to themselves as to which hand they would. It's
2: going to be just um, like America's Got Talent, Tara.
3: It's very similar, very, <laughs> And then we Can't also wait. have, <laughs> we also have some of the the leading members of the hunting community have very kindly agreed to give up their time and um, and um, struggle with technology to actually act as our expert judges. So we have um, uh, two uh, local judges and we have a guest judge from abroad who has some connection with the um, the type of hound so that um, again just like in the real world it provides an opportunity because our judges will be judging our expert judges will be judging over zoom so they can all three discuss a hound whilst looking at the photographs and the video so it's just like it being in the middle of the ring The only difference is you don't have to be so polite because there aren't any connections within hearing distance. It's a bit (laughs) of fun, um, but they're taking it seriously because people have made the effort to take quality photographs and video. But some of the outcomes I think will be different to the real world because it's photographs and video. But it's amazing um, with a video, any animal, if you see it move, You know within a few strides if it's something a little bit special. doesn't matter if it's a hound, a horse, a human. There's a difference when you see them strike off in a um, um, 100-meter dash or (laughs) on on the racetrack.
1: Mm Yeah, and it's uh, I, I've been scrolling through at the website, and and really, you know, I know the North American judges. You have a pretty impressive um, Patrick Leahy, and I see um, John Carl. So, you know, definitely some legitimate, you know, very knowledgeable hound folks. So, I just I, the whole thing just delights me, and quite frankly, I'd like to just go pick up the Bassets and bring them to my house.
3: They are sweethearts, aren't they? But they are incredibly. Oh. As far as hunting machines, they are tenacious. Once they have their nose onto uh, the scent, they stick at it. And the difference, I think you'll see the difference between the American Bassets and the European Bassets, and even more so with the beagles, because of course you are hunting cottontails as opposed to hares. So hounds are bred very differently. Although um, the bassets and beagles are hunted on foot, all the other packs are are um, hunted um, on horseback. But what we have found is that a number of people have said, because we've got photographs and video, you can actually see more of the points of a hound on the virtual hound shows than many people do see in the real world. Because a hound will be presented to you from the right angle, whereas in the real world, it's just luck of the draw, if you happen to be stood in the same place, very different than if you're one of the chosen judges stood in the middle of the ring, making those, um, those serious decisions.
1: Well, and I would too speak. So one thing I've always wondered, and because, because I, I, I think you're probably the most of an expert that I'll uh, maybe ever have the opportunity to talk to. I've always heard and never properly researched it that bassets are essentially dwarf foxhounds. Is that in any way true, or are they just uh, like, where did bassets come from?
3: Well, bassets are one of the more ancient breeds, and if you they come from France, and as I say, they hunt. Tenaciously, so it doesn't matter if it's good scent or bad scent, and uh, even their ears are designed to actually funnel the scent up towards the nose. Very much like if you look at some of the breeds in America, the Penmerydell have got much bigger ha- ears than the English Foxhounds because the people who were hunting in certain areas, if it's warm um, environment, you need hounds we've got that have got the ability to Um, funnel more scent towards them because of course the scent evaporates so you need hounds that have got that extra um skill to uh, follow their quarry um and uh, as you say they are absolutely lovable people but um um very tenacious there are um, stronger words that whippers in would use regarding (laughs) bassets um (laughs) but they are wonderful to be out with and of course for those people who want to see hounds hunting you don't actually have to go to the expense of a horse to enjoy it so it it really is a great fun to go out and see the beagles and the bassets hunting although i know a lot of people do enjoy going out um either having given up riding or or never having ridden, uh, ridden um following in a car or on a bicycle because you can take up a position and we talk about the hounds um, being able to um, use their noses to follow their quarry, but of course, one of the great joys is the different um, the music of the hounds the voice the, the noise they make as a group of hounds as they hunt as a as a pack as a team, and that again is the the great joy certainly in certain parts of America. I imagine in the wooded areas to stand back and hear um, a Penn merydale packs um chiming up and coming towards you would put the hairs on the back of your neck up
1: oh absolutely and i've had the fortune i've hunted in in the woods in the carolinas and i've hunted in you know wide open fields in texas and nebraska and you know in kansas and it doesn't matter where you are but the music of the hounds is just there's there's nothing absolutely nothing like it um so and and i will tell folks who are listening, you know, in United States, and I don't know if it's this way in the UK, but people kind of have a stereotype in their head of a, a kind of a fat, lazy basset hound. And the basset hounds that you can see on the virtual hound show, they look remarkably different than the pet basset hounds. You might, your friends might have, or you might see at the AKC shows. Like these are athletic dogs that they, they, they're, they're not droopy and pokey. They, they look like
3: very oh, they're, they're mean machines they mean business they are yes. muscle and they have drive and purpose and of course they operate as a team and each one wants to be the one um at, at the center of the attention so um they are wonderful to see. same with the beagles um but all hands that it is working as a team and for those of us who go out and see them because the shows are a little bit of a beauty competition but in truth the great thing is to actually see a pack of hands working as a team under the direction of a um an experienced huntsman and watching that relationship and interplay between themselves and the quarry that's that's the, the great thrill and riding a horse um yes we some of us are fortunate enough to be able to um um jump jumps, but mostly a horse is just to take you from A to B so you can be stood in the right place to see those hounds doing what they do best.
1: Absolutely. So you were we're running a little bit out of time and I wanted to touch on so if when folks go to the website and we'll put a link in our show notes so everyone can get to it. But there's not only the hound show, there's also a silent auction where hound um, hunts, I'm sorry, from all over the world really have put, um, you know, items you can purchase or they've put hunting experiences or all kinds of things that are, it's a fundraiser for for the organizations or for the hunts themselves or what, what does the silent well,
3: auction benefit? Of, well, it's a bit of both. Some of the hunts are putting in auctions to benefit um, charities. Others, because of the fiscal impact of fundraising of COVID-19, they're fundraising for themselves. But I know in the past you've spoken to uh, uh, Steve Thomas about his trips abroad. Yes, I would urge yes. you uh, urge you to look at the auction lots because there are some amazing hunting trips for um, uh, individuals, for couples, for groups. And, of course, instead of having to set it all up, this has already been teed up for you. And you will go and be um, treated um, as a VIP because you're there oftentimes as guests of the masters. um, But there's also fishing trips. We've got holiday cottages all over the world. In fact, we've got a safari to Africa, if you fancy going with a group of, I think it's um, 16 friends to Africa. I'm not sure if I could find sixteen friends I'd want to spend a week with, <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing experiences, and of course, there are some great um hunting experiences and racing experiences in america so um, the opportunity no one has i i i'm the auction. I think is going to raise a lot of money for hunts that that are needing to fundraise but to see the quality of the 120 lots and the diversity of them um, and the ingenuity of the different hunts but if you've ever thought of um, traveling interstate or once we can travel a little bit further um, when COVID uh, hopefully um, gets under control and you can travel to Europe to Ireland or America, there are some amazing hunting trips that um, you don't have to be an experienced hunter to go on the trips and look after you. If you are an experienced equestrian, I'm sure they will um, provide you with plenty of opportunity to um, uh, test your map, but I can't think of a better opportunity if you've ever considered traveling to um, look at a lot, do some bidding, And I think when you do arrive, if you're successful um, at your destination, you will be treated um, in a manner that you could only um, dream of if you try to organize it for yourself.
1: Yes, absolutely. Texas governors announced that the state was was basically closing down on my 40th birthday so i told my husband that he we're going to go pick one of those trips to go well i'm going to go pick one of those trips oh, to I'm go jealous. hunting abroad oh my gosh for, that would for be my so cool. makeup
3: <laughs> well I, I, I well i think we've got to look positively to the future and absolutely and the great thing with most of these lots there are um, uh, people have left it open for, for when the world comes right. And of course, I've forgotten to mention, we've got some incredible auction lots to New Zealand. So I don't uh-huh. know um, if anyone's ever considered going to New Zealand, but that's some of the places that um, people have invited pe- um, um, the winner to go to would be incredible in New Zealand. Um, oh,
2: Glenn has always wanted to do New Zealand. I think that's an excuse, Tara. What do you think?
1: absolutely
2: we're going to go uh, I
1: shopping think i need to go in a bid so richard we're we're about to run out of time so i know there's a time frame that the the hound show has started so folks can go on right now and they can they can shop at the silent auction and bid on their items and vote on hounds what is their deadline
3: right well it's free to attend which is which is Wonderful. fantastic um, and we're open now at the, um, the website is virtualhandshow.com, easy to remember. And we're open right this way through to the 4th of September. And really, it is if you've never seen hands, pop along and have a look see for yourself. If you're an expert, there's an opportunity for you to judge against um, those people who um, uh, we feel are the top of the tree with, within the various hand types. But for most people who hunt, there's a, it's a real opportunity to explore the breeds of hounds that you'd never heard of. I'd never heard of a hound type called the billy in France. beautiful yes. hounds. Looks like a Saluki, but they hunt as a pack of hounds. And of course, we've got our harrier packs in New Zealand and in the United Kingdom and the various Irish packs. So... Uh, I commend you to go and have a look at the virtual hound show, have a little bit of fun. But of course we are hoping, um, that in the not too distant future that COVID, um, 19 will be put to one side and we'll all be able to travel around and get back to, um, an element of normality.
1: Absolutely. And I, I hope, and I I really think that this virtual hound show will really, um, you know, allow I think people from you know various countries to maybe feel a little bit braver about reaching out to going hunting in France or going to New Zealand or something along those lines. So hopefully, that's kind of the glass half full aspect of Corona Apocalypse, and then the virtual hound show will make some new new personal connections. So, Richard, thank you so much for coming and talking to us.
3: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, um, Tara. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, I wish. Yourselves and to your listeners, um, the very best for the coming season.
1: Well, oh my gosh, Richard was lovely, so fun, <laughs> such a great conversation. And I really, really hope that our listeners go go to the website. You have to register to look at the actual hounds, which is fine, but look at the hounds, look at all the different kinds that are out there. I think it's a little bit flabbergasting, wouldn't you say, Jen? Oh. Um, I knew I had no clue. I knew there were English hounds, American hounds, and
2: penn Marydale hounds. I thought that was it. And you know there's there's bassets and there's harriers and stuff like that. But even within the fox hounds and the stag hounds, they're so different and they're shaped so incredibly different. I saw some in there with these the beautiful stand-up ears like you see on an English hound and then there were some yes. with giant hang down ears that looked almost like bloodhounds. It's
1: crazy. Yep. And a couple of those, uh, I can't say the word, I'm not even going to try, but a couple of those French breeds, they kind of like have a, a reminiscence to me of like a sighthounds physique, yeah. like a greyhoundish. The, the, the piercing eye is very different. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, you know, we, we've talked about this multiple times with different people from different hunts that every hunt breeds their hounds, not because they're the prettiest, but to hunt the best in their territory. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you think of France and you know, it's a fairly large company country in the, in Europe. And there's that many different, I think, you know, Richard said there was like 30 different hunts or different, different excuse me, of kinds hounds. of hounds. Yeah. yeah. And that's just different quarry and different territory. So sure. I, that was delightful. Yeah.
2: We're going to we're definitely have to have Richard back on. And also they have a vendors village at the virtual Yes. And of course they have the pictures of the hounds competing And even if you are not a houndophile, they had, as I mentioned early on in the conversation with Richard, the different liveries that they wear, they're not just different colors, they're different, completely different styles, because they came from a history that was completely different. The the cut of the coats, and the type and shape and style of the boot, and even the hats they're wearing, fascinating, fascinating stuff.
1: Definitely don't go looking at it thinking you're going to be looking at something similar to like an AKC dog show. Like no, this is a very different,
2: very, very different. Absolutely. And the, the photographs are gorgeous. Yes. They're beautiful. Not, they're not done with the, you know, the quick snapshot on the Android phone. No, they're beautiful. Yep. Absolutely. Well, as, uh, as Tara said, we're going to have a links to the virtual hound show on the show notes. But if you're not one to go for going to show notes, just remember virtual Hound show. It's easy to find. Yep. And you can find Tara. Tara's on Instagram. You go for t TN Tibbets with all the B's and all the T's. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> and you can find the links to today's show at horses in the It's episode 2501 for the 20th of August 2020. And you can have all the shows with you wherever you go. If you haven't done so already, please download the Horse Radio Network app for your iPhone or your Android. You can choose individual shows. We have, I think, 14 of them right now to have subscribed to, or you can hit the subscribe all button to make like life easy if you're like me and can't make up your mind. <laughs> and thank you to Green Flower Botanicals for sponsoring today's show, along with the Horse Radio Network auditors. How can people become an auditor, Tara?
1: They go to um, Horses in the Morning, and I believe it's on the right side. It's pretty blatant. It says, you know, become an auditor and click on there and sign up. And I think it's as low as, what, $5 a month? 5 bucks a month. That's right. Help support programming here on Horse Radio Network.
2: And it gets you into the much sought-after Horse Radio Network auditors-only
1: Facebook page. Correct, which is a very positive, helpful... Um, no political talk, no negative Nellies, no, none of that. It's all no. fun and horsey.
2: No, no internet bullying allowed. And you also get to have um, heads up on nifty cool things coming up on Horse Radio Network. Uh, when we have questions that we want to submit to our, our uh, hosts or topics that we want, we're looking for topic ideas, we post those there. So you get to have input on what we talk about on the shows. So I guess it's time to say uh, good night.
1: Good night.